Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. If we haven't met yet, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the elders here at Candeo, and I have the privilege of kicking off the new year, first Sunday of the year. And, uh, you know, the thing about the first Sunday of the year is it often doesn't fall within a, a series of sermons. And now some may say that's a benefit because you have the freedom to kind of pick what you want to teach on. But if you're wired anything like me, uh, you'll experience a little bit of what I would call option paralysis, meaning when there's too many good options, you don't land on one of them for very long. So when the rest of the elder team handed me the Bible and they said, here's the entirety of God's revealed word to mankind, let us know what you want to teach on. And I was a little, needless to say, I had some difficulty choosing. So about a month ago, I was complaining about this to Jake and uh, he had the idea to grab my Bible and open to a random page and point. And, you know, he was joking. He might've thought it was a good idea at the time, but the joke's on him because I'm actually going to teach on what he pointed at. So Deuteronomy 23, you are to have a digging tool in your equipment. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. (laughs) For the Lord, your God walks among you to protect you and deliver your enemies to you. He must not see anything indecent among you or he will turn away from you. Now, that seems like something you shouldn't have to tell someone, right? Like, like what happened that this was necessary to put in there, right? I can just picture God walking through the Israelites camp and stepping in something. Ah, that's it. I'm out of here, right? I'm joking. I'm not going to be in Deuteronomy today. Um, and we don't choose what we're teaching by something like a blind point. We actually have a have a rhythm of teaching within the context of the greater story. So we don't fall into what, what I would call verse of the day theology. Imagine doing this with, with any other book. Imagine you're reading a book and you open to a random page, read a couple sentences and then close it. And then the next day you open to a page, read a couple sentences, close it. When you get to the end of that book, when you finish reading all the words, how much of it are you going to remember? And if you do remember some of it, you're not going to really know the point, right? So this is the reason we avoid this type of teaching because it can become way too easy to to rip things out of their context and to make them fit into your own personal preferences rather than taking the script for what it says and letting that shape and mold your preferences. So this morning, I thoughtfully chose John 9 and it was presented and discussed and affirmed by the rest of the elders, not because of a random choice, but because I've been especially burdened and, and passionate, you might say, about our, our ability or should I say lack thereof uh, and our willingness to share our testimony with the people around us, regardless of the threats we anticipate or the consequences we may face or even the perceived uh, attractiveness of our stories, right? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 9. Now I'm going to read the whole chapter um, so that we have the context, but then I'm going to zoom in and kind of highlight some specifics that I think will, will benefit us this morning. But first, before we do that, let's pray. God, you are good. We are so thankful for this morning and the opportunity to explore what you have revealed to us in your word. In spirit, guide my tongue to say the things 
that you want me to say and to remove the things that, you, that only I want to be said. I ask that you would illuminate the scripture for us this morning as we dive into John 9 and open our hearts and minds so that we, so that we would take from it what you want us to this morning. God, thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So John 9, I'm gonna start in verse one, read the whole thing. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he's the one and others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and I washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. That, the day that Jesus made mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confesses him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciple. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he comes from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? 
Then they threw him out. Now Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out and went and found him. He asked, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Now, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So this passion for our ability, ability and willingness to share our testimonies started when I was reading Paul's letter to the Christians in Colossae or Colossae. Um, in chapter four of the book of Colossians, Paul asked them to pray for God to, to open a door for them for the word and to share the mystery of Christ. Now, during the time that Paul wrote this letter, he was, he was imprisoned in Rome for sharing this same gospel or the mystery of Christ that he's now asking for the opportunity to do again. Paul, the apostle Paul had no issue uh, sharing it. He had no need for a perfect fall in your lap opportunity. He was bursting at the seams with the desire to share Christ with people. Now, I tend to believe in, and I, I recognize this is a, so scriptures over here, sanctified imagination over here. I recognize that this may be a case of sanctified imagination, but I tend to believe that Paul wasn't asking for someone to come up and say, you seem different. You know, what, what is it that gives you the joy regardless of life circumstance? I tend to believe that Paul was like, pray that this jail cell door opens and whoever opens it's gonna hear the gospel. Because Paul, Paul had no, no need for that, that, uh, that, like I said, fall in your lap opportunity. The gospel is what spilled out of him. But back to the text, let's look at some key verses here that I pray will embolden and encourage us to share our testimony of God with the people in our lives. First, we'll see boldness. We'll see the courage of the blind man. In verse eight, the man is identified not only as, as blind, but as a beggar as well. And not only as a blind beggar, but his reputation among the Jews was that of a man that was born in sin. This was a common belief uh, from the Jews is that, that suffering was a result of specific sin. If you're blind, sick, poor, paralyzed, it's because someone sinned, either you or your parents. That's why the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? They didn't even consider a different option because it was just a given. Let's pull over for a second to recognize Jesus's response to this question. Verse three says, neither this man nor his parents, parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. Now that could be a whole sermon, but that's a sermon for next January. So let's keep moving. The blind beggar would have been, would have been the lowest of the lows in this socioeconomic hierarchy. Yet he had the courage to stand on the truth of what he knew, even though that truth was, would be offensive to the religious elite. Now, the religious elite would, have, elite would have been the highest of high in the socioeconomic hierarchy. So imagine this. You know what you believe is true. 
and you know that it's going to offend someone, and that someone has already decided that if anyone confesses Jesus as the Messiah, they were going to be banned from the synagogue. We see that in verse 22. Now, I don't think this totally lands with us because we don't have a category for being banned from the synagogue, but this was a big deal. Being banned from the synagogue was not just like being removed from a church where we would probably just go down the road and find a new church. No, being banned, being removed from the synagogue was removing someone from their very way of life. It was telling someone that they have no connection to what they believed at the time to be God's family. This was not just a slap on the wrist. Yet he not only stood on the truth that he knew, but he spoke to them with confidence. And he spoke to them with confidence and very little knowledge of who Jesus was. We'll see his confidence in a couple different places in this text. Verse 17, again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He is a prophet, he said. Now, this is an amazing claim to make in the face of religious elite. They would have heard him putting this Jesus guy on the same level as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. These are the people that the Jews revered with the highest honor. And they would have heard this guy putting Jesus on that same level. This label was not taken lightly. And to claim Jesus was a prophet took some serious confidence in the person who you barely knew. We see his confidence again in verse 26 and 27. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love that. He's like a little bit of sarcasm. Come on, guys, what are we doing here? We went over it. Do you want to follow him too? So we see this man speaking with boldness and confidence. But now let's take a look at what gave him the courage to be so bold. It was his, it was his cleverly crafted responses and his deep intellectual knowledge of who Jesus was, right? Wrong. The second thing that we see is that he spoke confidently with very little knowledge of who Jesus was. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed and received, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked him. I don't know, he said. And then again, verse 24 and 25. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And we see his response. Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind and now I see. And even when we do see him make a claim about who Jesus is, he says he's a prophet. Talk about an understatement. You know, it is true and right that Jesus was a prophet, but it scratches, it just scratches the surface of who he, who he is. So we see that he had no carefully crafted responses to the Pharisees' questions. He had no high level theological doctrine to prove his testimony, yet he stated what he knew to be true with courage. I was blind and now I see. This is one of the most iconic and recognized statements in the scripture probably due to the song that most of us know, Amazing Grace. That's probably what you guys have been thinking that whole time, right? But let's look at this statement through the lens of, of testimony. Each and every one of us in here that are 
that are in the fold of God can say that statement with full confidence. Regardless of the threats, oppositions, or questions that we may encounter, we can all say, you know what? I don't know. What I do know is I was blind and now I can see because Jesus healed me. We can all say that. Now, I was talking to Greg Brown about this the other week, and he said something really good, and I told him I was going to steal it. So, Greg, if you're out there, thanks for the illustration. He said, don't we all do this with the important things in our lives? For example, I wasn't a believer in the chiropractor, but my pain got so bad, I got so desperate that I went to see him, and he tweaked me, and now I'm recovering. And now I'm a believer in the chiropractor, and I'll tell people about him. Well, what if they ask you what bone they tweaked and what technique they used and how it affected your health? I don't know. All I do know is I was in pain and now I'm fixed. You see, a deep intellectual knowledge and understanding is not a prerequisite of sharing. And we see this in the blind man standing firmly on the truth and being unashamed of his lack of answers. And we fall into this so easily, don't we? It's probably the number one reason that I hear for people not sharing their testimony with people, not sharing the gospel with people. Well, what if they ask questions that I don't know the answers to? Or what if they know the Bible better than I do? Listen, God doesn't need our defense and he is not bound by our knowledge or ability to articulate that knowledge. Charles Spurgeon had a sermon illustration regarding this that, I, that I've come across a few times and every time I come across it, I just love it. And he says this, I'm, gonna par- I'm going to paraphrase a little bit so I don't have to read words like henceforth or doubly. But this is what Charles Spurgeon says. It seems to me that there has been twice as much work done in defending the Bible as there has been expounding on it and sharing it. A great many learned men are defending the gospel. And it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when most of the books are of this kind, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they, were, they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here we are, soldiers to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back, open the cage, and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. So what Spurgeon is saying here is that when we concern ourselves so much with the defense of something as powerful as the gospel, we are actually doing less than if we just presented it freely and openly and let the questions and oppositions encounter the gospel rather than our reasons or answers for them. We do better by the gospel when we share it than when we defend it. Now, this should be encouraging to those that are, that are worried about being stumped by question, but here's where I foresee some hesitancy. I have known many people that would say, that's all well and good, but my story isn't like the blind man's. 
My story isn't like the person that was physically blind and now can physically see. My story isn't like the the person who was addicted to meth and robbed a liquor store and got on a high-speed chase with police and now their life has changed. No, my, my story is more boring. It's more simple. I don't even remember what it was like before I knew Jesus. I was raised in the church. I had Christian parents. I don't know how to contrast it. Well, first of all, thank God for that, right? Praise God that he kept you from having a story like that. Every Christ follower that I know and that I love dearly that has a story like that would probably say they wish they didn't. And now you're saying that you wish you did. It is a grace of God that he gave you the kindling of a godly family that he later ignited into a personal relationship. And second of all, guess what we all were prior to encountering Jesus? Dead. We were all dead in our sins on the same path to the same destination for the same reasons as everyone else. So listen, we have to stop saying that our testimonies are boring. We have to stop saying that they're simple because for those who are in Christ, the same God and miracle that that changed the heart of the alcoholic, the same God and miracle that changed the heart of the addict, the same God and miracle who changed the heart of the abuser is the same God and miracle who changed the heart of the apathetic, the greedy, and the self-righteous. At the root of all of our stories is the main character of our stories. And guess what? It's not you. The miracle at the base of all of our stories is not that we were drunk and now we're not. It's not that we were greedy and now we're not. It's not that we were blind and now we see. That is a miracle, but it's not the miracle. The miracle at the foundation of all of our stories is exactly the same as the blind man's. It's that Jesus was there. It's that we encountered Jesus. And because of that encounter, we can now see or we're no longer addicted or we can, we're no longer apathetic and so on. You see, in John 9, the ones focused solely on the healing of the eyes were the same ones who were missing the one behind the healing. Let's look back at this. Verse 10, they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. Verse 15, the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. I washed and I can see. Verse 17, again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received his sight until they summoned his parents. They, were, they didn't even care about that. They were like, well, I don't believe that, he believed that he was blind. He's making it up, right? Verse 19, is this your son, the one who you say was born blind? How then now does he see? We could go on, but the point is that the blind man was pointing to Jesus, not his eyes. The Pharisees were doing everything that they could to either disprove the healing or discredit the healer so that they completely missed the Messiah that was right in front of them. Now, I'm sure the blind man was more amazed than anyone that he lived in darkness and now now he can see trees and colors and, and people. But when questioned, he said, Jesus did it. You see, the focus of our testimonies is and should always be Jesus. 
If we believe our story is boring, it's because we don't understand what happened. When we say our story story is boring, this is what we're saying. I was lost and dead in sin. I had no righteousness of my own. Fill in the blank here, whatever it was for you. My heart was far from God and I had no hope. But the God of the universe, the word through which all things were made, the God that breathes out stars, the Christ that all of creation worships, the trees, the rocks, the oceans, wind, stars, everything, they all proclaim his majesty. The God who can hold Orion's belt in his hand and can measure the stars with his fingers. This God put on flesh. He was born of a virgin, so he wouldn't inherit our sin. He came and lived a life full of opposition, persecution, hatred, temptation. And for 33 years of his earthly life, he remained perfect through all of it. Living a life that I needed to, but couldn't. He was then murdered on a cross in public humiliation, forsaken by the father and shouldered all the wrath that should have been poured out on me. And the Christ who had 12 legions of angels ready and willing, gritting their teeth, waiting for the word to come and save him, chose to stay there. And my story doesn't end there because the Lord of everything who subjects everything to himself was then buried behind a stone that was three days later removed from the mouth of the grave. And he rose victorious over sin, death, and Hades. And not just in a general sense, but over my sin and your sin, my death and your death, my eternal separation and your eternal separation. And this God who shuts the mouths of lions and who weather and storms obey as soon as he speaks, then ascended to the right hand of the Father who is currently interceding and mediating on my behalf so that the salvation, that my salvation is as secure as the perfect high priest's intercession for me. And this Messiah who rose from the grave and ascended to heaven sent the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to guide me and convict me and empower me to flee from the temptation and sin that I used to walk in. And he seals for me the promise that was purchased on the cross. And when I am called home, I will forever be free from the bondage of sin and death to see Jesus, not in a mirror dimly, but face to face and not to know him in part, but to know him fully, even as I am fully known. That's all I've got. That's my boring testimony. Now, who thinks this testimony is boring? The testimony of the gospel of Christ invading your life is powerful and it doesn't need anything colorful or clever to sustain it. Now, some of you may say, sure, that's all well and good, but you had time to prep that, right? (laughs) And that's true. You know, some of you may say, well, that doesn't doesn't fit organically in the conversations that I have with people on a day-to-day basis. How will I present that in a way that's relevant to the conversation and will draw people to it? Well, listen, people being drawn to it is not the point. Preach Christ. He is the magnet and he will draw his own to himself. If we focus so narrowly on tactfulness, one of two things will inevitably happen. We will either choose not to say anything because it doesn't fit, or we'll choose to say and put the emphasis on the wrong things. 
We can contrast John 9 with the story of the woman at the well in John 4. I won't read the whole thing, but I would encourage you to go and read it later. But both stories have an encounter with Jesus, they have a miracle with that encounter, and they have a testimony to the people around them. But we'll see two different responses from the people. In John 9, there's no reference to the Pharisees or anyone other than the blind man believing that Christ is the Messiah. But in John 4, we see that it is recorded in verses 39 through 42. This is what it says. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything that I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this is really the savior of the world. So what's the difference between the two testimonies? Did the woman at the well have better arguments or a more appealing story? I mean, on the surface, you would think that the healing of lifelong blindness would be more compelling than telling someone that they, they've had five husbands and the one they're living with now isn't their husband. So what's the difference? Why do we see different responses? Here's the answer. Christ calls to his sheep and, the, and his sheep hear his voice, recognize it, and they come to him. Those who are not his sheep do not hear his voice, do not recognize it, and they run away from him. We see this back in John 9, verse 35. Jesus was speaking to the blind man. He says, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Verse 39, Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. So now Jesus has shifted this to spiritual blindness and the Pharisees that were there picked up on it. This is what they say in verse 40. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus said, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So here we see Christ revealing himself to the blind and then revealing the blindness to those who claim to see. So concerning ourselves with drawing people is not the point. And if we focus so narrowly on tactfulness, we'll start to emphasize what he has given us rather than what he has done for us. We'll start to focus on the fact that we can see rather than the God who gave us sight. Let me say that again. If we focus so narrowly on tactfulness, we will start to focus on the fact that we can see rather than the God who gave us sight. We'll start to concern ourselves with having questions, uh, for having answers to questions like, well, what did the mud do? And why did I have to go to this pool instead of that one to wash? And um, why did he have to use spit? That seems kind of unsanitary. We'll start to concern ourselves with having answers to questions that don't affect the truth of the gospel. Candeo, open the lion's cage. Don't concern yourself so much with the defense of the gospel to the point that it prevents you from sharing it. This is not to say, this is not an anti-apologetic message. This is not to say apologetics has no place or isn't useful you know, I tend to enjoy apologetics. I find, it, I find it useful and interesting. But if the foundation of your appeal to others to come and see, then there's a good chance that you're, that you're missing the gospel that draws people. 
Just open the lion's cage. I pray that we would be a people marked by our zeal and our eagerness to share Christ and what he has done. I pray that we would be a church that bursts at the seams with the gospel, a church that's unashamed of the gospel. Spurgeon would say, uh, if, we, if you cut us, we would bleed scripture. I pray that that would be true of us. Those who, are, those who love God and are loved by God, your story's not boring. We, we have to stop saying it. It's not boring. Your story is not about you. And you can stand in full confidence that if you testify, Christ will draw his people and Christ will be glorified. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of all praise. You are the king, the creator, the sustainer of life. Thank you for removing the scales from our eyes and for the testimonies of so many in here that um, there was a time when we were blind, dead in our trespasses and sin that we once walked. We were all by nature children of wrath, not having a clue of the direction to start toward you but you approached us, you called us, you lifted the blindness to see you for who you really are. And God, you being rich in mercy because of the great love that you have for us made us alive together in Christ. We have nothing to boast about except that you did it. You are the initiator and the finisher of our faith. You are the one who holds us up and empowers us to walk in the good things that you have prepared for us to walk in. God, I pray that, you would, that we would be a people marked by our zeal and eagerness to share you with the people around us because you are worth more than any discomfort, awkwardness, or adver adversity that we may encounter. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.